All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Welcome to episode seven of Acquired. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we sit here on the eve of the announcement that Google is the most valuable company in the world to tell you about Google's acquisition. Google announced that they were the most valuable company in the world? Uh, what? <laughs> Google announced earnings. And- oh, yeah. People are speculating that it might. Uh, I haven't oh, when it opens checked tomorrow, the I haven't checked the stock price, but that it, Google's market cap might pass Apple's tomorrow. Ah, gotcha. So, uh, Mr. Market will tell. Yeah, in in uh, steep contrast to what we normally do on this show, that is just conjecture and and uh, hypothesizing. We never conjecture on this show. <laughs> We're going to talk about. Um, kind of an older acquisition when when you uh, look at the the companies that we've looked at so far, um, Google acquiring YouTube. David, why don't you uh, take it away with acquisition history and facts? Will do. So YouTube, this is a big one. Um, 
founded, uh, YouTube was founded early 2005 by two former engineers and one former designer from PayPal. Um, part of the, uh, the much ballyhooed PayPal mafia. Um, and interestingly, we'll get more into this later. Um, YouTube was one of the very first investments at Sequoia by another member of the PayPal mafia, Roloff Botha. Um, I just keep it in the family. Um, so it was founded in early 2005. Uh, and, um, and then in November of 2005, uh, Sequoia and Roloff, uh, come in and they lead a $3.5 million series a, um, and, uh, and then a few months later, it was very, uh, very early growth days having just released the product, uh, when Sequoia leads the series a, a few months later in December of 2005, SNL, uh, remember the lonely Island days on SNL, the skit lazy Sunday, uh, was, uh, comes out and, um, <laughs> wait, it, so it only took us seven episodes to talk about Andy Sandberg here yeah. on acquired <laughs> <laughs> ironic. I know <laughs> editors note, David looks like Andy Sandberg. There should be no inside jokes in podcasting. Um, Lazy Sunday comes out and a whole bunch of people like video their TVs and post it to YouTube. And uh, I don't know if this was in aggregate or just one of the versions of the clips of this clip of Lazy Sunday generates 7 million views on YouTube, which was huge. I mean, like there were only 100,000 people on the site before then. Yeah, I think even at acquisition... Um they had an audience of 72.1 million, but they, they were reporting 19.1 uh, monthly active users. So, I mean, to get that kind of view count that early. And that was even, you know, a year I'm before. sure it was a lot of college kids like me watching it over and over and over <laughs> again. Well, the amazing thing is thinking about watching it on, um, you know, people filming their TVs like that. That's like what Vines look like now. Yeah. You talk about a, a kind of the history rewriting itself. So, on the back of Lazy Sunday, uh, among other... Uh, viral hits. Uh, April 2006, the company raises an $8 million Series B, also from Sequoia with Artist Ventures, uh, um, which I believe led the round. Um, and by the summer of 2006, uh, YouTube is uh, has grown in July to uh, about 100 million video views a day, um, which is pretty incredible. And then... Um, and a whole bunch of problems that arose with that, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but uh, very shortly after, October 9th, 2006, uh, Google announces that they are going to purchase YouTube for $1.65 billion. Incredible. I mean, this is just over a year and a half after the founding of the company, literally in a garage. Um, they'd only raised $11.5 million in venture capital. So yep. the, the multiple $11.5 million to $1.65 billion. That's what a hundred, hundred and twenty xing. Pretty incredible. I mean, this kind of stuff. And this was two thousand six. This stuff didn't happen in two thousand six. I mean, after the you know the internet bubble, the lingering after effects are still reverberating through the valley even a few years later. And the idea that a company would go from founding to actually being sold to a real company, Google. Uh, not just, you know, going public with funny money in, uh, um, in 18 months for over one and a half billion dollars. I mean, 
It was crazy. Even even Instagram was that we talked about on one of our first episode was such a splash of one billion dollars. Yeah, insane. So Google acquisition uh, closes by December of two thousand six. In March of two thousand seven, Viacom files a one billion dollar lawsuit against YouTube, accusing um, the company. Uh, the directors, um, and I can't remember if Google was named in the suit or not, of knowingly and blatantly violating copyright laws and posting um, material like uh, SNL is an NBC property, not a Viacom property, but like Lazy Sunday, knowingly uh, allowing it to persist on the site, even though it didn't have, uh, YouTube didn't have the copyright. Um, so, and, and that began this protracted battle over content rights and YouTube that really was only finally resolved in 2014, seven years later. It was a whole series of dismissals and appeals and judgments. And then finally the Viacom and Google settled in 2014. It's hard to believe. It is. Okay. So this lawsuit happened, but which is, you know, we'll talk about in and of itself, but there's this amazing byproduct of the lawsuit, which is the disclosure process, disclosure process. And we get to see, like, it's just public in the public domain, all of this incredible material and testimony about YouTube, um, about Sequoia's investment in YouTube, about the acquisition. Um, so, uh, you, you can find this online and we'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, as part of the discovery process, Google and Roloff's, uh, or sorry, uh, Sequoia and Roloff's um, investment memo for the Series A of YouTube uh, is available, uh, and it's a really incredible document. It is incredibly fun to read. I mean, I, I I was just looking over it preparing for this show, and the the key risks that they identify in here could not be more candid and could not be more real of concerns. I mean, we're going to talk about this later in evaluating the the acquisition and where the world is today and all that, but you know, key risks competition slash defensibility like here we are what 10 years after the acquisition and facebook is stealing video share yeah revenue and like what it, i thought was really interesting and uh we'll talk more about this throughout the show and i think especially in the the themes um but uh in the memo roloff and sequoia when addressing competition and defensibility they say the team will need to remain laser focused on improving the user experience which isn't what you would really expect when you think about defensibility. Like, in nowhere in this memo does it talk about network effects. And YouTube is, you know, on the surface, you would think network effects, defensibility through having all the content, which leads to all the viewers, which gets more content. Um, but no, they're actually focused on improving the user experience. And, I mean, that's not exactly how I would describe YouTube today. Like, what... When I think about the things that make YouTube great, it has pretty much zero to do with the user experience of YouTube. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, YouTube has actually, I think, really failed. Like, who goes to YouTube.com and then discovers something or searches for something on YouTube? No, you come through other channels and then you leave. Yeah, I'm often... Well, I, this is... I want to say this for later, but I think it's, it's worth talking about now. The I'm a little bit bearish on YouTube primarily because it's not a destination site they are reliant on traffic from other channels and those other channels namely facebook where people go first to decide what they're going to be looking at 
are having their own platforms and yep. actively pulling people onto those platforms. And can drive traffic. So, so YouTube is effectively, you know, a super fancy CDN at this point. They, they're they a, a place where the videos get hosted, where people don't necessarily rely on going to YouTube for discovery that or being YouTube, told what they should watch. Or it's, yep. it's just un, uninteresting. Hosting that YouTube and Google pay for. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's free hosting. And, I, you know, uh, if there was a better place, I think people would easily throw it up on that better place. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, we'll get into more of this in detail, but, um, back to another thing that's really interesting about this lawsuit is, um, we have, there's a bunch of testimony from Eric Schmidt, who was then the CEO of Google and, um, uh, as part of the lawsuit. And he is interesting. He testified, uh, that he told Google's board in the, uh, the days leading up to the acquisition and as they were working on it, that he thought, YouTube was worth about 600 to 700 million. Um, and that as the deal progressed, uh, Google decided that it had to pay more, literally a billion dollars more, um, to keep it from competitors. Uh, and that YouTube had indicated to Google, uh, that quote, uh, had indicated to us that they would be sold is what Eric says. Um, which is super interesting because, you know, there's these content rights issues swirling around the company. There's the massive hosting fees that they were paying at the time and are still continuing to pay. Um, and yet the, the growth was explosive. And it's interesting that they essentially put themselves up for sale um, and that we have this, this testimony here, which is really cool. Well, do you think, I mean, one way that I would interpret that is we are going to be sold is we are going to go out of business unless we have someone that is financing all these lawsuits. <laughs> like th- there, we have no well, that's option. That's what Viacom argued. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and ultimately lost, we should say, but, um, but yeah, super interesting. You've got this property, this product that is clearly, you know, incredible product market fit growing like, I don't know anything. I, I think nothing that the internet had ever seen uh, until that point. I mean, maybe I guess Facebook existed then, so it was probably growing at a similar rate. Um, and yet had these massive existential questions that, uh, even though it was a, a huge price, um, leads them to actively try and sell the company only 18 months in. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the sale, too, it's almost entirely stock. It was only $15 yep. million in cash and the rest in, in stock. David, if you're Google, why do you do uh, such a stock-heavy transaction there? Well, uh, I don't know at the time. I mean, I don't know how much cash Google had on hand. Um, presumably a lot, but this was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and whether they could, uh, whether their treasury could, you know, how much cash they had on hand and how much cash of that was available and on U.S. soil and not right, in... Right, that's true. Um, yeah, maybe they had no choice. Yeah. But to me, I mean, like, looking at that... Google was only going to go up, and it's easy to say that now, looking at the skyrocketing that it's done. But if you're, you know, Larry Page, don't I, you got to be optimistic there, and you got to be able to see that your company is only going to get more valuable. It'd be interesting to go back actually and look at all these shares now and and do the math and see um, what's the current value of that. It would also be interesting to look at. Um, you know, we've mentioned Sequoia a lot in in this show. Uh, both in the past and this episode, but in particular because of this investment memo, um, you know, Sequoia is one of the largest shareholders in Google. And, uh, 
I don't know if they were still shareholders at that time, but they have a history of keeping their public shareholdings, um, which would be very interesting that the largest investor in YouTube uh, might also have been the largest or one of the largest shareholders in Google at the time of this acquisition. Hmm. Interesting indeed. Okay, so... So so uh, just to wrap up, so what happened yeah. next? 2006, Time Magazine names, quote, you person of the year, but the cover is YouTube uh, and the theme of you and user-generated content um, and and the growth just, just continues on the product side. I mean, by May of 2010, so four years later, less than four years later, um, they're up to, YouTube is up to 14 billion video views a month from 100 million four years earlier. Uh, by 2013, YouTube has a 1 billion monthly unique v- uh, viewers, uh, visitors, um, and, and the growth has just continued since then. Okay, cool. So I've heard you say a lot about views and viewers. Got to feed my family. Yeah. How do you feel about YouTube as a business? Well, here's what's really interesting and that's happened since then, especially, you know, we've done our episode on Twitch. Um, Netflix, you know, has also been built. Uh, well, Netflix as a digital streaming service mm-hmm. has been built uh, during this same time. Amazon stood up something from scratch in that time. Yep. You know, and, and YouTube is really one of the um, few, if maybe only major video business, well, YouTube and Facebook, um, that are ad supported now. Um, and I wonder if it's kind of been proven that direct payments are a better model for video on the internet um now and obviously twitch has advertising but um as we talked about i think most of the commerce most of the dollars flowing through twitch are in the form of subscriptions yeah so you touched on two really interesting things there one in thinking about um youtube as a, a, a profitable business i think um last year there's not a lot of good stats on this sense but in february of 2014 um they were doing about four billion in revenue, but were um, pretty flat. I mean, they they, they uh, I guess not flat as much as they were break even business. Um, they, yeah, four four billion in revenue, growing fast, but uh, after payments to content creators and hosting costs and ad sales costs and all associated yeah. stuff, about a break even business, yeah. you know, zero profit. And so, in the last year, uh, estimates that are that they are a five billion dollar business, but again, still not a profitable one. Um, the interesting thing to think about there is what is their average revenue per user? And the information is pretty sparse on this, but I think uh, the latest numbers around kind of Facebook and Twitter are like somewhere in the seven to nine dollar range for for those social services that are that are ad supported. It's probably in that seven eight dollar range, maybe a little bit less mm-hmm. because it's um. You know, the, the ad units. I would bet probably less because if in 2013 they had a billion unique visitors and if, say, they made $5 billion in revenue last year, imagine that number of uniques has only gone up since 2013. So you're talking about less than $5 per, uh, per user. Yeah. Yeah, so you can see why uh, YouTube Red is a thing. So YouTube Red is a, a service they announced last year that you can pay $10 and get ad-free YouTube, and it's their sort of answer for how do you get um, YouTube the, the music that is on YouTube as sort of a streaming service for when you're not actively watching a video, you don't want the ad interruptions, all that. So that's a $10 a month service. On the one hand, and I 
I'm going to call this short-sighted, but on the one hand, they need to do that to make it a profitable business. I mean, it's been a 10-year experiment here since the acquisition, and there's a lot of other ancillary benefits that Google gets out of having YouTube, but as the core business, not hugely profitable or profitable at all. So, you know, maybe moving to this other model gives them, uh, you know, more cash flows where they're able to be a, a profitable business. On the other hand, it flies directly in the face of YouTube as an ad platform. And yep. they're getting their highest value users, which are the people that the advertisers actually want to reach, to not see the ads. And to do brand advertising, you need enormous scale. I mean, Facebook and YouTube are two of the only, the, the only properties in the world that can do it. And if YouTube starts dwindling the population of people, particularly on the um, you know most affluent end, that are actually seeing ads, they become a less valuable ad platform. So what we're seeing here as Google transitions to trying to make YouTube a profitable business with YouTube Red is potentially a huge shift in the entire strategy of what YouTube as a business is. Yeah, um, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, uh, you know, video as incredibly compelling as it is and as large as it's become on the internet, mostly thanks to YouTube and all of these services, you know, Facebook video and Twitch um, and others that have sprung up in its wake um, is it, it fundamentally though does have a different cost structure than other types of, of content on the internet. Yeah. I mean, if you just compare this to Instagram alone, you know, acquired for a um, billion dollars and then I think they projected it at um, making three, three yeah. billion this year. Well, and, and the, and the cost structure is different on, on two fronts, you know, one, there's the hosting and then the delivery of the video, which costs a lot more than text or, or static photos. Um, but two is, is the content payments, you know, and YouTube has really been aggressively investing in this and it's not just payments to the professional media organizations of the world. It's payments out to content partners that are, uh, you know, once we, you know on Instagram, those people just post their post their content or Snapchat. You know, they're posting for free. For free, and, and on YouTube's YouTube, paying them. That YouTube's splitting fifty five percent of their ad revenue out and paying it out to those producers. And and you know, we know um, on on Twitch, you know, lots of the most popular streamers have talked about how YouTube has approached them and offered them large payments, very large payments, uh, to stream on YouTube, and they're streaming for free on Twitch. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, the, the the whole Twitch live streaming thing is interesting in itself, but the even the um, kind of stored uh, archive video that that uh, YouTube is is that's their bread bread and butter. I mean, Facebook has a product that is pulling people away in huge numbers because that's everyone's first step. And I think that um, the stat that I recently saw was seventy percent of Facebook videos are uploaded natively. That used to be people embedding wow. YouTube videos, and it's just been this massive, massive shift. Yeah, pretty incredible. Well, I, I feel like we should uh, we should move on to acquisition category. But before we do, one more quick aside um, that I want to throw in. This is a particularly fun episode because my very first uh, job interview or interview for my very first job uh, when I worked at, at UBS in investment banking uh, after college, I was interviewing in... January 2007 and this acquisition acquisition had just been announced and and I did this as a case study in my interview I thought man this was going to be like the best job ever I could talk about like 
internet company strategy <laughs> and media and like this would be awesome. And then I learned investment banking was actually something very different. But <laughs> <laughs> but now you get to do a podcast. Now I get that, to do a so. podcast about it. <laughs> I also think right before we move on, I, I, I didn't fully, I guess I want to come around at that last point. Calling it short-sighted, that's assuming that they are sticking with being an ad platform and particularly a brand advertising platform. If there is some grander plan, you know, I, I think it's short-sighted if that's if that's the current business. If there is a grander plan to move to more of a Spotify-type subscription business, which we'll see if they can, um, you know, weather that storm of the crazy yeah. margins that you have to pay out to content producers at that point. But, um, you know, it, it's short-sighted in that they maintain that same advertising platform strategy. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Okay, acquisition category. David, you want to take it? Yeah, so um, I think the obvious one here is product. As a reminder, our, our self-identified major categories are people, technology, product, business line, and other. Um, but I think, I, you know, I think I'm actually going to go with other on this one. Um, and I think it's a little bit what you were talking about just now, Ben. Um, but there's, I'm not unique in coming up with this. And I, I was inspired by a few articles that I read in preparing for this show. But people have been talking for years now about YouTube as Google's, quote, loss leader. Um, and I think that's an interesting um, way to look at it. Because um, if you think about Google as an ad sales machine, which it is, um, much of it self-serve, but a lot of it, you know, they have a huge ad sales force. Um, and you think of YouTube as a part of, um, the, the, the overall portfolio of products that, that Google's, uh, ad sales team is selling, even if the business itself isn't profitable as a, as a business, as a, uh, and the product has huge problems. Um, but it's really enabled Google to have, um, 
uh, multiple types. You know, if you think about their their core search advertising and AdWords, and then the display network that they built up following the double click acquisition, um, and then now with video and YouTube, um, I think it's I think it's an interesting, you know, like I said, quote loss leader product for Google. Yeah, I, I actually was going to go with other also, but for a totally different reason. The um, they're able to bring data that they're getting from the videos that people are uploading and watching into the Google search algorithm on mm-hmm. all media types. And I think that, sure, they could do what they're doing with Twitter now and embed um, kind of a passed-along search to, to YouTube and re- return the first couple videos. But what they're doing with, with the content on YouTube and the analytics and metrics of people watching these videos and understanding you know the topical things that are going on in each of these videos is so much deeper than anything they'd be able to get with YouTube as an external company. So, um, you know, uh, again, probably primarily the product, um, but I think yep. uh, other for, for both of those two reasons. And that also gets to uh, something I want to talk about in a minute, which is embeds. Um, yeah. Uh, but we'll get there in a minute. Uh, One point I want to make here. So Google was had been playing with a product for a few years called Google Video Search uh, yep. before they acquired YouTube. And... Interestingly enough, they actually left it running for like a year or two after the acquisition in its exact same form where you could actually upload videos to Google Video and then left it up for, you know, uh, yep. much, much longer. And it's interesting. Schmidt so, actually talks about this in his testimony, hmm. uh, saying that one of the reasons that they were so compelled to pursue YouTube was that it was clear that YouTube was growing way faster and had way better engagement than Google Video. Yeah, so what were they doing wrong? I mean, why did they need YouTube and what, why couldn't they do it with Google Video? Where did they fail there? I don't know. This is a really interesting question. Um, part of me wonders if it is like, you know, kind of related to the Lonely Island, Lazy Sunday, like it kind of just got virality and it started taking off. And I mean, I remember I was in college, you know, when this was happening and one day in, you know, 2006, all of a sudden everybody on campus was watching YouTube. So do you think, oh, that's kind of interesting to think about that YouTube did better than Google Video because YouTube, by the nature of being a scrappy startup, was able to like basically acquire a bunch of debt in the form of lawsuits because they were doing things like you know letting people upload all these illegal videos primarily because they didn't have great technology to filter it out and and really no means to but also like that was the thing that sort of got their flywheel going and once it was in motion they could do all sorts of things to um, sort of pay down that debt later on, but fundamentally they had the users and they had content flowing in. And yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it would be uh, I, I think it would be probably wrong and at least unclear to say that part of YouTube's strategy was to to illegally post content that they didn't have access to. I mean, this is what the whole lawsuit was about, and YouTube won the lawsuit, so. Um, you know, legally, so the courts have decided. That that yeah, un- you know, according to the courts. Um, but you know, I think it's unclear. And like, you know, we work with startups. You know, like things are. You don't really have a good handle on what's going on in the early days, and people use your platform for what they use it for. But I think it does illustrate, you know, the scrappiness, the um, you know, the memorableness of 
YouTube, you know, and the idea that that could like plant in your brain as a concept of, you know, I mean, so many of these things I want to talk about when we get to tech themes, like streaming, that was not a concept that existed before YouTube, really. Yeah, just uh, talk to Justin Khan. No one wanted to watch. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the live streaming that we think of now, but even just streaming media. I mean, real networks was a thing, obviously, and we're here in Seattle. But like most uh, before YouTube, you know, and broadband penetration wasn't the, you know, basically 100% that it is now. Like people downloaded content and watched videos that they had stored on their hard drives or listened to music or podcast, you know, podcasts originally were downloaded into <laughs> iTunes, and right? The idea that you would stream well, something yeah, live. You put on your iPod with USB so you can listen to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I'm and sure that's what, what all why of are our listeners here now? are doing. Yeah, 12 years later and the medium is just barely taking off because... Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, I mean, think about it, like YouTube was really able to popularize this. And then, and then the other piece of it, I think, is embeds. Um, which I want to talk about in a minute. You know, I mean, YouTube could benefit from this amazing service that it offered that that clearly millions and millions and now billions of people love, which is watching hosted video on the internet. Um, but you didn't have to go to YouTube.com. You had to go to Google.com slash videos to discover and watch yeah, that's true. And it wasn't Google videos. Yeah. I remember thinking like, well, what videos would I have that I even, it's, it's like a naming thing. And oh, oh man, what videos would I have that I want to upload to Google video? I don't know, but it like requires some weird creativity that I don't, I don't, yeah. didn't, or but you have, have but a it's personal like YouTube, blog. Like, oh, or... I know what this is. Like, yep. you know, it's videos of stuff that I do. Yep. Or, or, or you have, you know, your own website about personal blog or, or whatever, and uh, you want to embed a video in there, yeah, you do that. And then, you know, if a user double clicks on it, they go to YouTube and then they learn about YouTube and they say, oh, you know, maybe I want to host my videos there. Or, wow, look at that Lazy Sunday sketch. Yeah. I have one more allegory that I want to make. I was thinking about um, sort of the debt you acquire in doing things that are like shady because later on it's going to be an untouchable flywheel that you're you know you've got so much cash that it doesn't matter and you can deal with it there's actually two things that just came to mind one is linkedin just lost that lawsuit where the thing that they were doing that we all hate and that everybody notoriously rips on them for is like somehow they can never stop emailing me and they've been incredibly invasive in the inbox and they took all my contacts and they invited them all to linkedin for me and that was user hostile and illegal and they years and years and years later now finally got hit with the penalty that was like i don't know it was in the neighborhood of like a hundred million dollars and the value that they gained from that and the early days and all that lock-in is way more but you know the horse is way out of the barn like the race is over yeah and i mean it's really interesting i mean i'm not uh i don't think either of us is saying we endorse either that we endorse this or that I think a lot of these tech companies like explicitly are thinking no, in this Machiavellian way, but, but think about, um, you know, think about Uber and Airbnb, right? Like Airbnb, one of the, they helped bootstrap their supply side network with posting to Craigslist. Uh, was that, um, you know, that was against Craigslist terms of service. Uh, was that, uh, you know, evil and Machiavellian of them. Like, I don't know. They probably didn't think about it that much. They were probably just trying to grow and not die and stop selling cereal. Right. Like, yeah, there's there's one more insanely good one that I heard recently. That's it's uh, quite a bit older. Microsoft apparently had this practice where they would sell you the rights to use MS DOS, 
but it didn't matter whether you actually put MS-DOS on that computer or not. You were charged as a Microsoft customer for the number of CPUs that you shipped, period, no matter if they had DOS on them or not. Mm. And that did an incredible thing because that, you know, the companies then are thinking like, well, uh, it doesn't matter if we put this on or not, we're going to get charged for it. So every PC leaving the door of the factory had MS-DOS on it. And then once Microsoft had the, an alleged monopoly on the entire computing industry, well, oh, then, then the Department of Justice comes back and says, well, that particular sales tactic is illegal. But again, years, I mean, in, years, in, years too late. In startups, when you're, you're trying to survive and grow, you know, people say this, but this is it in practice. You know, unfair advantages, if you don't have one, somebody else does. And, you know, YouTube had an unfair advantage over Google Video. Yep. Okay. Um, I think we've kind of covered what would have happened otherwise. Like there was a massive problem <laughs> yeah. looming for YouTube. Someone um, else would have picked them up or they would have gone, gone bankrupt. Um, so yeah, tech themes. We've also covered a bunch of these, but, um, but you know, I, I pulled, I pulled three, I have a couple others, but, um, I pulled three out of the Sequoia memo that I thought, um, were, were that YouTube really illustrated that they identified, you know, one user generated content. You had this kind of, um, wave that started with blogging with blogger in the sort of early two thousands. Um, and then it moved into, uh, photos, you know, you had photo bucket, shutterfly, um, and MySpace, and then, and then early Facebook popping up of people starting to, you know, get this concept of sharing photos. And then you had podcasting taking off and you had audio and, um, you know, it was kind of, you know, Sequoia loves these wave analogies, but uh, they, you can read the memo and it's just there in black and white, you know, video is the next and potentially biggest, uh, piece of this wave that's coming. Um, so that's one, uh, two, continued broadband adoption i mean this would not have been possible without broadband and and then three uh uh the the quote is wide proliferation of inexpensive video capture devices um what was happening in 2005 2006 was you had like flip yeah, cam flip video, man that went yeah. so well with cisco yeah. and you had <laughs> digital cameras still cameras shipping with video modes uh, and this was new. And then, and then shortly thereafter, cell phones happened, uh, smartphones happened. Yeah. I mean, you think about when this acquisition happened, was it like October of 2006? 2006? Yeah. I mean, not even a year before the iPhone. Yeah. Um, all of these things that all combined to, you know, in this, this, uh, um, you know, inferno to, to create the opportunity for YouTube. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, I, I've been kind of ripping Google the whole time here and, um, we'll continue to. But the, they made a big bet that people would move from watching their televisions to watching video online. And we weren't calling it cord cutting then, and we didn't yeah. know that we'd have these Netflix-like subscriptions and things like that. But they were definitely making the bet that, that video on the internet is the future of people's attention. And they were absolutely right about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't have cable. Do you have cable? Nope. Not in my adult life. Yep, me neither. Um, I think, uh, I think it's time for conclusion. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the way that I sort of want to think about this is what else could Google have done if they wanted to capitalize on the trends we've been talking about, particularly the, the, 
um, one that I was thinking of is, is uh, video on the internet is the place where people's attention will be. And as someone who, um, you know, as a company that captures value from being somewhere in the value chain of people's attention, of people's attention and where they spend their time, primarily in the form of seeking out information, it, you know, Google was making a defensive move that in the f if that's how people are spending time in the future, then we need to be able to put advertising in front of them on that time during that time to monetize it. So what else could they have done? Netflix wasn't really a business yet that looked anything like this. That would have been sort of a silly acquisition. Um, they were trying with Google Video and clearly couldn't do it internally. And I, I, it feels like a rebooted effort there wouldn't have necessarily been as fruitful as this acquisition. I, I don't know that they had a lot of other ways to capitalize on this wave. Yeah, I like this. And uh, think about both then and today. What percentage of Google searches end in YouTube? I, I would imagine a pretty significant percentage. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. And if and if Google were sending, I don't know, I'm going to pick a number out of thin air, but uh, 10%, 15% of Google searches, I, I think that's seem feels reasonable to me end up in a youtube yeah. uh link and if they were if google were sending 10 to 15 percent of its traffic to a non-google property uh, i mean i guess it kind of does that with like amazon <laughs> um yeah yeah that's interesting is that bad for google's business if they're i guess it's bad if someone gets big enough so that they actually become a destination site where you go right to that home page instead of using google to search for it or facebook to discover it through what your friends and Facebook are surfacing to you, which are basically the two ways that people find things on the internet right now. Yep. They're like, or they search on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I even probably search products on Google that I know will come up on Amazon first. And I'm a, I freaking have an Amazon smile button in my bookmarks bar so that I always know to go there so that code.org gets the, the, the money. But it, I like always forget to do it because I end up just searching for the product in Google because I know Amazon's going to be the first thing anyway. So Google is my front door when I know what I want and Facebook is my front door when I don't know what That's I want. so big hearted of you don't and exist. such a fail. <laughs> I try. Um, what was the point I was going to make there? That is, okay, if it actually, let's go work off the hypothesis that a huge chunk of the traffic passing through Google goes to a single site instead of an aggregated bunch of little sites. That should be a problem because then in sort of a like Porter's Five Forces way, that business gets power over yep. Google and then people start going directly to that thing and they don't need like the retailer of Google anymore and they can just get their, their material directly from, um, directly from YouTube. YouTube has been owned by Google for 10 years and they still can't manage to make youtube.com slash a destination site. Like, I don't know that that actually would have been threatening to their business. Yeah. On the other hand, you could argue that, uh, Google really had no motivation to invest in doing so. Um, and had YouTube remained independent, which as we kind of established sort was of impossible. Yeah. Um, but let's imagine they could have, um, you know, would, uh, product-oriented founders have led that company to, um, you know, something that looks like Twitch. And what's going to happen to Twitch in the next 10 years? Yeah, that's super interesting, too. So I'm going to render my conclusion. It's a C. Wow. Is that our lowest grade yet? 
Certainly mine. What did we give Siri? I don't remember. It's like a B minus. Um, okay, so for me, ah, gosh, I kind of, part of me really wants to split this into two pieces. Um, and so I think I'm going to do that and give a grade for each, but, but we have to have just one grade, you know, so I'm going to ultimately yeah, that's, render that's a final grade. 50% your show, you do what you want. Yeah, right. Well, thanks, Ben. <laughs> I really appreciate the trust here. Um, so I think as a, um, I'm going to take first as a, um, business YouTube, um, unfortunately I don't think has been a particularly good business. Um, as we've established, you know, we're 10 plus years into the company and revenues are great, but profits are basically zero. Um, and maybe there are things that, you know, they can invest in to change that over time or Google could have done differently, but, um, you know, a, a $5 billion revenue business with a $0 margin is not a great business. Um, in my view, fine. You start one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm a VC. My job is to, is to judge other people's businesses, not to, you know, do the hard work <laughs> of actually building them. It's great. Um, so, you know, on the business side, I think this is a, gosh, I don't know, C minus maybe. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, I can't build a $5 billion business. Like, it's it's freaking hard. But uh, And that $1.65 is just the beginning. I mean, think about the operational cost of oh, yeah. pouring more money into this business over the years. And people and content investments and all that. Um, but I just don't, you know, it's not a great business by great business standards. Then I think the other lens I want to look at this through is the product lens. And this one's super interesting because like YouTube is not a great product either. Like <laughs> it's really crappy in a lot of ways, like as we've been discussing. I mean, maybe folks out there do, but like Ben and I don't go to YouTube.com very often. I mean, I probably do occasionally, but only if I'm looking for a very, very specific thing. Um, and... Uh, you know, and it's still kind of ugly, the site, and they've totally missed out on innovations like chat. And and uh, I don't think I've ever opened the app directly. I've only ever been kicked into it. We even talk about mobile, but God. Yeah, right. You know, it took them forever to figure that out, and they're kind of like, okay, now. Um, but just on the, like, pure innovation side, I mean, uh, and I've talked about this already, the concept of streaming media, and yes, it existed with real networks and others before, um, before YouTube, but really w ex working and working with video and working at scale, um, it changed the world, right? And then the second one being embeds, um, and embeds is a double-edged sword because as we're talking, you know, as we've talked about, like, um, when you can embed your content on somebody else's, on other people's properties, like, why do they go to your property? But, um, as a concept, like, it's pretty amazing. It's awesome. As like a site owner, I don't have to like host and, and do figure out the codec and the delivery mechanism for all my own videos. Right. It's and great. you did, I mean, it basically it, it upgraded the internet. YouTube upgraded the internet. Yep. And like I an, don't think that's an exaggeration. Yeah. It's an infrastructure layer that, that didn't previously exist and then was just totally off the shelf. Oh yeah. I'll just, I'll just put my YouTube video in that blog post. Yeah. So, and you know, not, for these, oh, not to mention to your first point when you like it, it changed the world and the, there's a whole category of people that are YouTubers that are making a living doing that and a whole, yeah. you know, generation of people that know those people as their celebrities. Yeah. I mean, it like, 
I, this PewDiePie. is the cheesiest thing, but a totally, totally democratized video creation and yes. becoming a star. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, and for that reason, I think this product side is like really hard. Like they, it's been really disappointing and a big failure on several product fronts. However, on like the core things that like, it is just knocked it out of the park. So, um, I give it an A minus on the product side. Overall, I'm going to mash this up into a B for Google um, because I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think if you asked Larry and Sergey and Eric if they could go back to 2006 and would they spend $1.65 billion for YouTube, I think they would do that all day, every day. Yeah. I mean, also, like, just on their personalities, right? Like, it's, I'm not going to call it a moonshot, but it, it sort of falls in the vein of, like, what if anybody could make movies and then anybody in the world could watch them and like this idea was not as fathomable in 2002 and obvious as it is today right like the world a couple years before youtube compared to the world now it sort of does look like a crazy moonshot and if they can do that and it doesn't at least cost money to run it's a good thing there we are cool thanks for joining us see See you next time. time who got the truth is it you, is it you, is it you who got the truth now? Huh. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the Internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes.